and welcome to the second episode of Opposition Cast, the new podcast from the Centre for Opposition Studies. I'm Nigel Fletcher and I'm the Centre's co-founder and research director. In the last episode, we focused on Margaret Thatcher's time in opposition before becoming Prime Minister and discussed how she approached the role. Amongst the issues we examined was how the Conservatives at that time prepared for government, including the development of policy and the writing of the manifesto. For a party making the move from opposition to government, a whole range of other practical issues have to be faced to ensure that they're well prepared, or as well prepared as they can be, for taking power. But how well do those changes of government work, and could they work better? My guest today is Dr Catherine Haddon, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government, and someone who's been studying these issues for a number of years. Kath, welcome. Hello, nice to be here. Can I begin by asking you about your research on this topic? Now, I think I'm right in saying that the project on transitions to government was the first one you worked on at the Institute. It was. um, Yes, it was the reason why I joined the Institute for Government. Peter Riddle had come up with the idea of looking much more comprehensively at how political parties prepare for power. So not so much getting elected, but actually what you do to think about what you'll do in government. Uh, and also how the civil service prepares um, for a possible change of government. But he wanted also to look historically. So my task initially was to go and look at the archives, uh, see what had happened in previous elections going back to 1964. And I I went back a little bit further as well on a few issues. But, uh, you know, it became such a fascinating project. I stayed on and um, then when we got the, the report finalised, stayed on to see the 2010 election through where we were expecting a change of government. We got one. Um, and having looked as well at minority government, coalition government and all the rules around a hung parliament, got a hung parliament and all the drama that ensued from that. So it was a fascinating time. And what was the intention of that research? What was it you were setting out to examine? Was there a particular problem with transitions to government that you'd identified? I think it was partly that no one had really looked into this before. I mean, it's it's so crucial if you think about it. If you just step back for a moment and think, well, you know, there's a lot of studying goes into governments. You know, there's not a huge amount on oppositions. Thanks to your organisation, there's a bit more. But no one had really sat down and thought, well, hang on, how is it that the UK goes around a change of government, a new government coming in? Obviously, in the US, that three-month transition period uh, thing. But in the UK, no one had really looked at it. And the big problem for the UK is that handovers are often so rapid. We go for these overnight changes where, you know, people might find out at sort of two, three, four o'clock in the morning or even later who's actually won the general election. And then if there is a changeover, it can happen by sort of 11 o'clock the next morning or, you know, midday, perhaps. So that's a really rapid changeover and forgetting, you know, the sort of ceremony and so forth of all of that, the trip to the palace and the changeover at number 10 and the speech outside on the steps of number 10. There's suddenly a prime minister, a new prime minister is thrust into being in charge of the government, being in charge of the nuclear deterrence, briefings on all sorts of matters. Ministers don't necessarily know, even if they've been shadowing the job until that morning, where they're going to go. And civil servants don't know who they're going to get as a new government or a new minister. So it's a really difficult thing to prepare for given that there's so many uncertainties. And although we try to stress that actually the transition should be thought of as the sort of weeks and months 
after the changeover. So not just that you had to be up and running that morning, but even so you are then the government, you are in charge. If there is a crisis, the morning you are into government, you're the one that has to deal with it. If you want to get your policies off the ground and running really quickly, you need to have those policies well prepared for government, not just for the election. And as a civil service, if you've suddenly got to do a 180 degree turn on all sorts of policies, get to know new ministers, rethink how you're managing everything across the department, how do you prepare for all of that with all of these uncertainties? So we wanted to look back at how governments had done it in the past, how civil servants had done it in the past. We also wanted to look at other places uh, local governments, we looked at Canada, we looked at abroad a bit more, and just think about what are the lessons that you can take from that? What is good practice for this? What's the sort of guide that you can give to people to tell them how to prepare well? And you've said there that there's not been an awful lot of focus on opposition, and that's certainly something that I would endorse as a, a gap in the, the literature. Um, but why do you think that is? Is it just that people are, are more instinctively drawn towards studying government I mean, it's clearly a very important role um, and one that actually has an impact on government itself doesn't it yeah there's it's kind of strange but in the UK it feels like there's this sort of gap sometimes between um, you know the politics and political studies where you're looking at elections and polling and political behavior maybe parliament and so forth and then the more administrative studies where you, you know, looking at how policy making occurs, uh, you know, what goes on in the ground and all of the issues around governing. But the issues that about how the two fit together are probably the areas that people don't look at as much. So what is it about in and of itself in that period that it is important for a party to be doing? And some of that is about scrutiny is about being the opposition. It's an important role in our constitution. But obviously within all of that, they're also thinking about the election to come. And that with you know, the limited resources that opposition parties have is a huge burden, thinking about how you're gonna get elected, let alone then adding on to that, sort of preparing for what you might then do as a government. Are you up to the job? Do you know what it's gonna be like to be a minister or a prime minister? I just think that, you know, it's partly that people tend towards the, what they see as the sexier parts of party politics, that kind of stuff. And they don't tend to think about it in terms of a job that you're going to take on, a very different job going from opposition to government is, it, you know, it's a very different approach that you need to be in governments. And making that mental leap is hard for the politicians. And I think it's just an area that therefore people neglect because it's not as visible, perhaps, as some of those other areas of politics. One of the major things that's highlighted in the report is the so-called Douglas Hume rules, uh, these contacts between opposition parties and civil servants ahead of an election. Um, can you say a bit more about that? Because it's not a convention that um, everyone will be familiar with. Um, what are the Douglas Hume rules and, and where do they come from? Yeah, well, to begin with, I mean, the name Douglas Hume rules comes from the fact that it was under Alex Douglas Hume, the prime, then prime minister, that they were first created. And the reason was the then Labour opposition were thinking about creating a department for economic affairs, which they then did do so. Um, this was going to be a huge change, splitting the Treasury in effect. And Whitehall knew that it, it you know, it would need to prepare um, Douglas Hume 
it would be appropriate to allow the opposition to have a bit of contact with officials to talk through what their plans were for machinery of governments. They started really with a focus on you know, machinery of government changes and they could be forewarned of that. Their name has somewhat changed for a while, called them pre-election contacts. Now they get called access talks. And now their role is a little bit wider than they were in 1964. And it's really to allow the civil service and the opposition, the front bench, to talk about all of the policies that they might be bringing into government to enable the civil service to sort of be aware of not just what's in the manifesto and been talked about, but actually what are the real plans behind that, because they're not necessarily the same thing. And also it gives them the, an opportunity to get to know each other because civil servants and political parties don't have as much engagement as they might have done earlier in last century. And so sometimes they can, they can be you know, not at all familiar with each other and can have a lot of worries and concerns about what the other side are like so it, it gets rid of all of that it allows them to engage with each other as human beings and I mean the reason I find them fascinating is because they go to the heart of the civil service role of being impartial serving the government of the day but still this need for them to be always thinking about future governments and making sure that they're in a position to serve whatever government might be returned later. So they were a really tricky balancing act for the civil service to make sure that they are using them well to prepare for an eventuality that might come, but also not alienating the current governments who might also be returned at the election by being seen to be too close to the opposition. So they're a sort of, they're a fascinating test of that civil service impartiality and a slightly unique UK development as well. I think the, the history of it is, is quite interesting to, to know where they came from, because I think, as you say in the report, the, the very peculiar circumstances in which they arose has led to some features of them which have not necessarily been um, terribly helpful in other circumstances. Can, can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, so one of the restrictions, I mean, as I say, from the start, they were supposed to be about machinery of government changes. That's not appropriate. These days, it is accepted that they will cover any kind of policy implementation that needs to be discussed. But there is still that focus on their need to be factual for, you know, in theory, they are the opposition just setting out what their policies are and for the civil service to be in listening mode. But the reality is that they sometimes need to be testing feasibility of these policies because they're an early chance for the civil service to say, oh, well, that's very interesting. They might not say, I can see all of these issues with it because they can't give policy advice but they might sort of pose questions which highlight some of the issues about feasibility. Because if the civil service don't get in those kind of warnings early on, or if they aren't starting to be aware of what the, the problems are, you can end up with policies uh, that a new government brings in where the civil service know from the get-go that these are actually going to be really difficult to implement and are probably not the right way to do it. So some permanent secretaries we've talked to have said that actually what's most useful about them is getting behind the policy and thinking through, okay, well, what is it that they're trying to achieve and is this the best way to achieve it? So that in that, those early days in their advice, they can perhaps sort of say, well, okay, we know what you're trying to do, but perhaps what you should think about is getting this policy outcome, but by a different means. So there's kind of limits to all of that, that the 
original way in which they were set out doesn't really acknowledge and the politics around them, this constant concern that from governments that they might be giving too much help to the opposition in allowing these contacts, that's kind of shadowed over all of them. Most governments, most ministers tend to be quite positive about it, but sometimes you get them very paranoid about why it is that their senior civil servants are going off and talking to the enemy. And do they happen too late, do you think? I mean, you talk there about the policy process and the fact that parties make proposals that they then discuss with the civil service in in the uh, contacts before the election. But by that point, obviously a lot of policy has been made, and, and some of it on quite specific uh, timescales. I'm thinking particularly of Michael Howard in 2005, um, when he had announced months before the election um, his timetable for action, which had a very specific timescale on you know things that would be done in the first week, the first month, and so on. And that all happened before the civil service talks had, had begun. So is it a problem that, that, that some of these discussions with the, about the practicalities of implementing policy come too late? Has, has that been a difficulty? Yeah, I mean, that's a slightly different issue. I'll come back to that. The, the time for these, uh, it can be too long as well as too short. So before 2010, it was about 18 months. And um, many of the people involved we spoke to said that actually that was a bit too much time because you started off with a flurry of excitement, had a lot of talks, whatever, and then they just fell by the wayside a bit. And then it was only really in the rush towards an election when it, the opposition party are often quite distracted by that point because obviously they're trying to win an election. Um, so the 18 months was felt to be too long to sort of keep the rhythm of them going. On the other hand, though, you know, where we've had very sudden elections in 2017 and 2019, they had a little bit more time because they were, you know, allowed from sort of the early summer. But sometimes they only happen during the election period itself. And that is too short a time, especially given that the opposition party are off campaigning. But the issue of whether or not they could be more helpful in terms of a party already setting out its stall, that really goes to the question of how parties prepare policy. And there are wider questions that have been posed about, you know, should there be a department for the opposition? Should uh, opposition parties basically have access to civil servants to better expertise in helping them craft policy in opposition? Because they're very under-resourced compared to the government. And that's a much trickier question. In other countries, you do have some examples where, you know, parties have perhaps access to the civil service or might have, you know, greater resource or whatever. But in this country, it's always been a bit of an anathema to um, help them so much. What we say, because we've done some work as well on opposition policy development and how you can do it well. And one of the things we say is that be really careful about creating hostages to fortune. You know, obviously a party in opposition really wants to both set out clearly what its plans are because, you know, it wants to get elected on them. It wants to make sure that it has clearly sort of set out its own vision and how that's different from the government's vision. But also it sometimes wants to show that it's capable by showing how much detailed work it's done on policy pr preparation. And that can be a big problem because no matter how much work you throw at it and, you know, opposition parties have used consultants, they've got different kinds of resources across their party, depending on how they're set up and funded and what kind of organizations they've got in their sort of central headquarters and all that kind of stuff. 
but no matter how much work you do there until you've got on the inside and you've seen the lay of the land what the problems are in terms of public services how they might go about implementing it what else is going on in the policy landscape thought through you know how what the sequencing of getting that policy out would be really done the hard work on the sums on the impact assessments all that kind of stuff it's only then that problems can be thrown up so we do talk about how you you know sometimes the most successful opposition politicians like Blair like Thatcher have set out what sounds like a really clear vision for what they want to do but actually isn't too specific about the means to get there which allows them more room for maneuver when they get into government and they see actually this is going to be harder or that perhaps there's a different route through that they could choose so there's a lot that you know parties need to do to just think through well hang on this might sound really great at the moment and i think this sounds confident and our sums are right and all the rest of it what damage is this going to do to me though if we get into government and it turns out i've got to do a u-turn on this because it's not feasible in the way that we've set it out so they've got to think through what's the the balancing act there you mentioned though about thatcher and blair and how they took more of a i suppose impressionistic approach to making policy ahead of the election has there been much difference in the way that different leaders have approached that process Um, i'm thinking of in particular edward heath who put a lot of detailed policy work in before the election and uh, prepared in a lot of detail and was quite proud of it not that it did him a lot of good uh, when he came to govern has there been much variation in that level of of detail yes definitely um it's always interesting actually you know as you've done as well going into the archives of political parties and seeing how they structured it ted heath yeah he had um all sorts of different sort of committees what you know working up options he had a lot of papers they were very detailed especially on machinery of government aspects you know he had some real interesting plans and as we know uh, a lot of it went out the window sort of two years into or less than two years into his premiership thatcher too um in her case actually a lot of it there's this interesting sort of balancing act between keeping your shadow cabinet and the rest of your party busy and then the work that you're really interested in and your thoughts as a leader about what you want to do. And with Thatcher, there were a lot of committees doing an awful lot of work and headed by people. I remember one very well uh, by Willie Whitelaw that was looking at machinery of government at the unions and what would happen if there was sort of breakdown in society because, you know, at that point they were heading towards uh, the winter of discontent, you know, union strife was very high. They were worried about the sort of governability of the country. But she also had people like John Hoskins thinking through the stepping stones reforms to the trade union. So she would allow lots of people to go off and work up their ideas, but she kept her own sort of much closer to her chest. Blair was a very centralised approach to it. So David Miliband was very influential in sort of keeping together a close hold of what their worked up plans were, what would be announced in terms of future policies. So shadows were able to go off and do their own thinking and so forth, but the real ideas had to be signed off by the centre. I think Cameron as well, he basically outsourced it to Francis Maud, who did a lot of work around particularly preparation for government. So that was one of the few examples where they had a dedicated team thinking about how will you transition these ideas in so they weren't necessarily doing the policy work themselves that was done 
by Shadows, but again, with a close hold, not only by Cameron's team, but also obviously George Osborne as Chancellor or Shadow Chancellor. But the thinking through of, okay, well, what does this mean in terms of a kind of transition period? A lot of that work was done by Francis Maud and those ideas did help them. They got in consultants to help think through what's the sequencing for our legislation? What are the areas where we're really strong and we can get off the ground very quickly. And what are the areas where actually we're going to have to take a bit more time in government to think through what we really want to do here? In the original report, you mentioned a number of case studies of policy making um, that was successful and was implemented successfully. And you've emphasised that we shouldn't look at the transition just as being the point up to the election. It's actually the period afterwards as you implement policy. Um, what do you think makes for a good transition in terms of policy? So one of the examples we drew on a lot was the uh, work that went into the Department for Education before 1997, and particularly the numeracy and literacy strategy. And there it was a case that they had done detailed work in opposition. So, you know, despite what I was saying earlier about don't sort of commit hostages to fortune, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do the work, you really should. They'd done a lot of the detailed thinking about it, but it was very much a sort of vision for how they wanted to, to or what they wanted to achieve. And then a lot of thinking about implementation. Um, and, you know, the mantra was obviously education, education, education. But actually, in terms of delivering the policy, the focus was very much on, OK, what structures do we need in place? You know, who do we need to get on side? What's the funding for this? Uh, what's the timetable that's sort of realistic? And that meant that they were actually able to hit the ground running. They also benefited from the fact that they had very good relationship with the then permanent secretary, Michael Bichard, um, thinking through, okay, how will we crack on with this policy? Because he knew it was a priority for them and something they really wanted to get off the ground quickly. Similar example was on devolution where they had help from the constitution unit at UCL to think through, okay, what are the sort of institutional barriers to getting on with devolution? And that allowed them to plan through the sort of both the referendums and the legislation that would be needed for devolution to happen, you know, relatively rapidly within two years of them taking office. But there was also a lot of developing relationship, uh, making sure that, you know, they had different parts of the party on board, really learning lessons from the late 1970s when the Labour Party had tried to push on with devolution before. So it was a sort of political, a politically savvy operation as well as one that involved a lot of sort of detailed constitutional work. We've talked a lot about machinery of government issues and, and policy making in the transition to government, but is there also not a personal element here, a sort of human aspect in the transition of shadow ministers into being ministers? It's, it's quite a leap. Has there been much focus from party leaders on preparing their front benches to enter government themselves? Uh, I know from the report that there has been a, a bit of work done on that in the past, um, some of it taken um, less seriously than others, uh, shall we say. I'm thinking of a particular story about um, John Prescott. Um, but, but how much focus has there been historically on, on that issue of the, the personal aspect of preparing for government? Yeah, the, I mean, the John Prescott example is the classic because it just shows that 
Um, although a party might endorse this and say, you know, we should have these, these are really good idea. Uh, you then need ministers to turn up to them and actually take them seriously. And John Prescott's turned up it was a meeting they were going to have with cabinet secretary robin butler and uh, john prescott had apparently been a bit worse for wear following i think it was the spectator awards and turned up at this meeting and said i you know why do i want some bloody permanent cabinet secretary telling me things so i don't think he was fully into the idea of it and that actually is a problem i mean you know blair yes he arranged them but he never came along to them cameron Ditto, I don't think he ever felt the need to actually engage himself. Parties have been taking these more seriously, not least we at the Institute for Government help run those kind of sessions now. And we're, we've been doing them since before the 2010 election, so we're quite experienced about running them and the sorts of things that are helpful. And they do take them a bit more seriously now. They do understand that actually becoming a minister is a real shock to the system. And understanding what it's going to be like in Whitehall, if you've not been in government before, um, is something that you can never really fully prepare for. But a little bit of help goes a long way of, you know, just even understanding the strange to anyone outside processes that Whitehall goes does in terms of things like, you know, submissions, how, you know, write arounds between government departments that try to sort of resolve interdepartmental battles and what the role of the private office is and how that will affect your daily life and really understanding just how much paperwork you're going to get and how many meetings you're going to get and how little control you will have over your life and, and the best ways to get that back as well so it's those kind of issues that it's useful for them to talk over to think over to hear from people who've been inside government about what it's like and just to start sort of thinking through what's it going to be like for me personally and also things like how do i work are you somebody that likes to sit in meetings and have ideas thrown at you and bat them around and make a decision that way or do you prefer to sit down at your desk with a load of paperwork and you know be left alone as you think through what the right decision is on any you know number of matters and even that kind of self-awareness is really really important because it's that kind of stuff that the civil service have to start figuring out from the get-go the department has to know how you want your papers to be sent to you they they need to know what kind of meetings you want to have you know if you're to be effective because one minister for many thousands of civil servants so they have to use your time well you have to use your time well or it'll be quickly very you know swamped so it's really useful political parties could take it more seriously but they over the years have been it's just, it's hard for them to make time. For some of them, it, certainly this was true of the Liberal Democrats before 2010, they don't like the idea of seeming presumptive that they're going to be in government by doing this kind of preparation. So, you know, if you allow me to give a plug, we at the Institute have written a series of papers on what it's like, not only for people coming in after an election, but, you know, a new minister coming in at any time. So what it's like to become a Secretary of State, a junior minister, a Lords Minister, all that kind of stuff, even becoming a Prime Minister and what that is like. Well, I think we'll allow you that shameless plug uh, for the Institute of Government's reports um, just this once. And you talk also about the work the Institute's been doing on helping to prepare opposition politicians for uh, government and for the realities of it. And when you've been doing that work, has there been any particular themes that have come out in terms of what the skill set that opposition politicians have needed um, more development on? Is there 
any areas where the skills that they've needed as opposition politicians haven't matched up to what you think they were probably needing in, in government? Because they are very different jobs. That's a really good question. I think skills is a bit difficult um, because that you know there are a lot of skills that uh, politicians develop anyway in doing the job and as the shadow you know you've got to be across a huge amount of policy anyway you've got you've got to try and learn a detail there's probably some as i say there's something which is about the sort of self-awareness of how you work which can be really important for the transition into whitehall i think though one of the things that we find most important and you know probably is harder for people who've not been in government before is that kind of understanding of the the architecture and the landscape of government because from the outside you know everyone's trying to look for the the sort of logical hierarchy of government you know that's what the role of the treasury is uh, what the role of arm's length bodies are but when you're in government it's much more complicated firstly you've got the fact that you know government departments and their relationships with each other are partly down to their various policy areas but they're also down to the people in charge of them and the ministers and their relative you know their relationship with each other and that can go a long way in terms of how well each department will work with each other the role of the treasury of number 10 you know a lot of that depends on the prime minister and chancellor of the day and how strong they are so those are sort of the nuances some of which you can get a sense of because if you you know take the same kind of cast of characters from opposition into government some of those same uh, dynamics will exist in some ways though they're always changed by government itself because the prime minister in number 10 is very different from an opposition leader in portcullis house uh, in terms of the people they've got around them the power that they've got the mechanisms they've got but I think the hardest thing is often understanding the sort of broader landscape and how arm's length bodies work, what their relative strengths are, what their constitutional legal position is, what levers you've got. You know, it's very easy as, a, as an MP, as an opposition politician to think, if I just say I want this to happen, it will happen. Actually, government is much more complicated than that. Implementing policy is more complicated. So understanding those complexities is the really important thing and, and to some extent it's stuff that you can only learn on the inside but you can have a much better idea you can have your horizons broadened from the outside and that can really make a big difference and you first wrote this report um, back in 2009 and i know you updated it i think a couple of years later but since then we've we've had not only the election in 2010 but we've also had elections every few years it seems in 2015 2017 uh, and 2019. Um, have you noticed that the process of transitioning to government on the part of the civil service, but also from the parties themselves, has improved um, since you made the uh, recommendations that you did in the report? Um, and also, do we know what level of contact there was ahead of the 2015 and, and more recent elections? I mean, how much work did the civil service do on preparing for Prime Minister Miliband and Prime Minister Corbyn? So 2015, uh, there was quite a lot of work uh, because obviously it was an election that was well expected. So the civil service had a lot of time to prepare for that. I think it was very unusual, the fact that you had a coalition government. So 
you were preparing with two parties in power and another party outside but they tried very much to make sure that they were even-handed in how they dealt with the different parties and the different access they had because remember some although mostly a a party in power has a different kind of access to the civil service they can't civil service can't help them develop manifesto policies but nonetheless you've been working up policies for some time and you know there's a there's a certain element of access that gives a benefit to them but for the liberal democrats obviously they weren't in every department so that made it a, a bigger challenge for them so the civil service was quite innovative in how it used access talks to make sure that they were very even-handed across the parties so quite a lot of work there. I think 2017 was much more difficult because obviously no one knew that the election was happening until it was announced and we were already into the campaign. I believe that access talks happened. I know they did, but uh, I think they were quite limited. I think it was quite difficult because you had two tribes effectively who weren't very familiar with each other. And from the Labour's point of view, obviously a huge need to focus on the election itself. So I think relationships there weren't so good. With 2019, obviously, this was a really interesting time because although, you know, when the election was actually finally called, we jumped straight into it, it was long expected. And one of the things that we were saying at the time is that this just shows the problems of the pre-election access talks being at the whim of the prime minister, because if you have a prime minister who wants to, they can stop the opposition party being able to have that access. And the Labour Party was sort of asking and asking and asking, you know, possibly a bit presumptively, possibly ahead of when it was actually fair to, but... We knew that there was likely to be an election. It was justified that there was some kind of access. And, uh, you know, that is something that I think they can reflect on and and learn from. But it, you know, it's how politics affects all of this. So uh, a bit more time to prepare there. And also, obviously, you had the same Labour opposition. So although you had some different shadows, they'd done the work in 2017. They'd had another two years of being able to do preparation for government work, including with the IFG. So that gave them some help. And I think for the civil services point of view, they'd had a few more times of going round this roundabout and preparing for a possible Labour government. So they'd been able to spend a bit more time on it. I mean, we should come back to the issue of preparing for possible coalition and hung parliament, because that obviously complicates it further. Yes, yes. And and clearly the, the, the idea of having a hung parliament and coalitions and minority governments and so on is um, is a very real prospect now we've seen over the last 10 years a whole range of electoral outcomes so do, do you think that that has also helped to focus minds on on how important this process is and and does that mean that over the last 10 years as we've had all these elections with various different outcomes um, that, that it's being taken more seriously and that the civil service is is engaging more in that process and that parties are also um, doing the same In terms of then, yes, whether or not um, everyone involved is taking it more seriously, um, I think political parties are. I think it is now a sort of recognised part of being, um, doing due diligence in the run-up to elections. So, uh, you know, ever since 1992, um, opposition parties have wanted to make doubly sure that their sums add up, that they're not going to get hit over the head Um, by the governing party in terms of whether or not their tax and spend policies all add up in the right way and get caught out like that. 
and similarly i think they now expect to do a certain amount of work to sort of say that they're preparing for government to show that they are competent and you know can be seen as a sort of potential future government and it's sort of an important part of that rather than being seen as being presumptive from the civil services point of view yes similarly i think it's become more part of a sort of institutional memory and part of expected behaviour. Now, when um, in the run-up to election, if we go and do talks with officials and talk about our research and so forth, oftentimes I hear them telling me things about how excess talks work or what kind of work went on in 1997 or whatever that I know is part and parcel of the research that we did. Uh, so that's very welcome that there is now that sort of institutional expectation around it. It still needs to be resourced. It's still very difficult for a permanent secretary in the run up to a potential election to make sure that they are carving out enough time to do this kind of preparation when, you know, they're still serving the government of the day and they don't want to be seen to be distracted from that in any way, shape or form. But it is more a recognised part of what the civil service is for and what they should be doing, whatever might happen as the result of an election. And finally, is there anything that still needs to be addressed, do you think? Uh, you've identified some improvements there that you think that it's taken more seriously in Whitehall, that it's now part of the established process for uh, the lead up to a general election. But what is there that still needs to be done? How can we do better at uh, ensuring the transition of government works smoothly? Gosh, you're making me sort of drag my mind back to the recommendations that we had in 2009. Um, there are still things that they can do. I think one of them is that despite all that I've said about the way they've institutionalised what reform should take place, I do think there is more that can be done to make sure that there is a sort of, you know, guide and preparations for what goes on in terms of good practice for preparing for a new government from a civil services point of view. From an opposition party's point of view, I mean, it's always remembering that you, you need to endorse this from the top, that it's not as good as just sending your shadow ministers or the more junior ones off to some workshop or something that actually you've got to engage with it at the top of the organization and show that you care about this stuff because shadows will take their cues from the leader they need to know that this stuff is prioritized alongside everything else that they're doing and i think there's a lot more that opposition parties can do to make sure that that thinking about preparing for government is actually in other parts of what they're doing in terms of you know developing policy thinking about personnel as well because uh, there's a lot of work that could be done on preparing say political advisors for being potential special advisors in government and not a lot of thought goes into that so yeah there are still areas that need to to be worked on i think as an update from 2009 i mean we now have a cabinet manual which sets out uh, some of these practices in terms of the constitutional handover but we've had a very interesting constitutional events around general elections since then. So the cabinet manual badly needs updating. And I think a lot more thought can go into this kind of stuff in any future edition of it. Gosh, well, that opens up a whole new can of worms for constitutional geeks. I think uh, we could have a whole new podcast or several podcasts talking about how to update the cabinet manual, I'm sure. Um, but for the moment, thanks very much indeed, Kath, for your time great speaking to you and thanks for joining us on the podcast my pleasure that was episode two of opposition cast with dr Catherine haddon of the institute for government talking to me 
Nigel Fletcher. We'll be back with another episode before too long, but in the meantime, thanks for joining us, look after yourselves, and it's goodbye from me. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies. You can follow us at Facebook at Opposition Studies, Twitter at Opposition UK, and online at oppositionstudies.net. Thank you.